0: Thanks for joining us again, and let's get to the service. I wonder, did anyone here go to the, the Adelaide show or the, or the Gawler show? Who had stuff submitted in the Gawler show? I know a number of you did, did submitted arts and crafts and, and paintings and photos, and I think we had a few people win um, some stuff too, which was pretty cool. Um, but the Gawler Show, and or any of these shows, uh, are a pretty, um, well, they're a fun event, certainly a fun event to take the kids along to and, and, and spend, you know, two weeks' wages um, on rides and, and show bags. And see, when did show bags become $32 each? What's that about? I've no, I'm unbelievable. Anyway, doesn't matter. Long gone are the days of the $1 Birdie Beetle show bag. But um, we are where we are, right? So, um, but yeah, it is—it is a lot of fun to, to be able to take kids along to the Gawler Show or, or to any of the shows. But um, I was reminded this morning. Did uh, well? I suppose the question was: for those of you that did take kids along to the show, did you manage to bring them all home? <laughs> sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes by accident, we don't quite—we're not quite able to keep track of all the kids that we have under our care. And if, if I'm honest, like as a, as a parent, um, thinking about or having experienced a moment in time where you lose a child in, in the midst of a crowd like the royal show, it's terrifying. It truly is. And it's terrifying because, one, you don't know where they are. You don't know what they're up to. You don't know who's with them. You don't know quite what's happening. And this person, this small human being with whom God, frankly, has entrusted you care and control, is it not within our care and control. And it's a terrifying thought to behold, isn't it? And we, we fret as a parent and we, we enlist help and we turn the world upside down in that moment in time. To find that which was lost to us, and until we have found the child, if you've ever experienced this, and in my previous sort of uh, previous job as a police officer, I worked the royal show and other big events, and you and you would be on the on the searching side of that as that parent comes to you, completely terrified that they've lost their child, and the look in their eyes and the fear that's there is very very real. And one of the things that never happens in those situations is that a parent who has a number of children, never do they come to you and go, well, i got three out of four, that's not bad. (laughs) Can you imagine the conversation, say, for argument's sake, so I take our two girls to to the show and we come home and I've got one, one out of two. Can you imagine the conversation Eloise and I would have in that moment in time, how do you reckon that would go? Where's the other one? Why didn't you leave two behind? No. Um, it's the it's it's funny, but it it's funny, but it's not because in the in a sense, it's the greatest fear for us as parents, you know, to lose something that has been thoroughly entrusted to us. But it is interesting that two out of three or three out of four, however many kids you've got, just having the majority back is, never seems to be good enough, does it? Is it? Why? Why is it not good enough? Why is it not okay to have just the majority? It's because each one of these children has value. Each one of them is loved. Each one of them is an incredible gift that we have been entrusted to care for. And when they're not where they ought to be, we're terrified, we're worried. Partly because it's our responsibility, but, but far more so because they are loved and valued as our children, quite simply that. And so as we go into this message today, I want you to hold that feeling. I don't know if you've ever had children or what your journey's been like, been. In that experience, if you've ever lost a child like that at the show or somewhere else, the shopping centre, but I want you to imagine it. Hold that feeling in your heart, in your mind, of what it could be like as we explore the message today. Now we are in the second week of a series called Apprentice, and if you were with us last week here, you would have seen my the the message that I'd pre-recorded for you. But if you weren't here, if you're up at camp, you would have missed this little intro, unless if, uh, if you haven't caught it online during the week. But basically, we in our culture now know an apprentice to be someone that works with a tradie, which is a tradesperson in, for everyone else in the rest of the world. Um, and a tradie is someone that, you know, has a, has a craft that they've specialized in, that they've trained and learned about. An apprentice, and an and apprentice is one that works with them, but works under them their leadership under their tutelage, ultimately under their authority, as they seek to learn the craft of their master. And so, most, you'll have an apprentice, but then you'll have a master tradesman, um, whose job it is to teach. And so, an apprentice is one that comes under the authority of the tutelage and the teaching of the master. And so, in the scriptural time or in the biblical times, they didn't use the word apprentice, they used the word disciple. And so, when Jesus called His followers, they were not called apprentices, they were called disciples. But the word means the same thing. It means a pupil, someone that is to come under the tutelage and teaching of another. And so, what we're doing across this series is basically exploring what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. That for some of us, the word disciple has so much baggage attached to it that we don't really know what to do with it anymore. And so, what what we're doing He's saying, "What does it mean to apprentice under Jesus, the Master? What does it look like to follow Him in, in this 21st-century life? What did Jesus have to say about it? And what do some of the other t- writers in Scripture have to say about what it means to be a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus? Because if we're honest, the calling of the Christian faith isn't really to is not merely to ascribe to a, a set of helpful philosophies." Being an apprentice of Jesus is about accepting the authority of Jesus over our life. It's not just adhering to His teaching, whilst it's helpful and it's true, it's actually about accepting His authority over our life, the same way that an apprentice accepts the authority of the Master. And it's the understanding that Jesus has the best possible life in store for us when we do seek Him above all else. So, we are quite simply looking over, I think, six or seven weeks, about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. And the reason I think that this is so important is that within our culture, and even within Christian culture, in its broadest sense, as in those who would tick Christian on the census, which I can tell you is a whole lot more people than attend churches on a Sunday, we have a lot of mixed understandings about what a disciple of Jesus actually is. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So, we are looking at some of the things Jesus said, and we're looking at what He had to say about it, and some of the other writers in Scripture, too. But as I mentioned last week, my hope for this series is that if you are a follower of Jesus, and I am one, I hope that's a given, and I know that many of you, most of you are, but not necessarily everyone. everyone. My hope is that, that for those of you that are followers of Jesus, that we will learn a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus, that we can put aside the assumptions that we might have had, And that we can learn something new, because we never stop learning, do we? We can learn something new about what it means to follow Jesus more comprehensively, more completely with our life. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, my hope is that God might show you something of His heart for you. Of His heart that loves you. Of the heart that we are called to display in love to you. And that wherever you're at with your journey, that out of this series or the teachings that we have, my hope is that God will show you something of His love for you and that you might, one day, one day soon, hopefully, come to trust in Him as your Lord and Savior personally. Now, remember that feeling of that lost child, the tension that we sort of began with? The fear, but also the ultimate celebration when they returned safe and sound. When you find a lost child, the the feeling of relief and celebration that we experience in that moment. We're looking at a teaching of Jesus this morning found in Luke's gospel account. And it's the account of Jesus' life and ministry that Luke records. And some of you have already figured out which Bible passage we're going to be looking at, haven't you? What do you reckon it might be? The lost, Jesus and His teachings are parables about the lost. So, we're looking at the first two of them, found in in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now, before I jump into the text itself, and it will be on the screen for you to follow along, I want to give you a little bit of context. So, this passage that we're looking at this morning comes directly after last week's message. So, the teaching that Jesus offered last week about the bar, what it takes to follow Him what the cost is to be a disciple. Remember, Jesus didn't offer a bait and switch of saying, everything's going to be awesome, and then tells us how hard it's going to be. No, He says from the very beginning, following me is going to be hard. And He's not sorry, because He knows that following Him is is worth it. The cost is worth it. And so, with that as the backdrop, we encounter this passage. And so, so, straight after Jesus' invitation and His challenge, He teaches us something of His heart. He teaches us something about why He came. And ultimately, if, for those of us that have accepted the cost and chosen to follow Him, why, what, what it means for us to live this out. So, let's have a look. It's in verse yeah, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors... And the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Gross. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. How absolutely gross. Now, Jesus, in his, as He begins His ministry... He's beginning to get a bad reputation, so it would seem. Why? Because he's choosing to hang out with the people that the religious elites at the time, apparently, considered that no self-respecting Jew would spend any time with. That's basically what this opening passage is telling us. But I want to take a minute, before we go into Jesus' actual teaching, I want us to place the players that we've got in the text. What have we heard? who, Who have we got here? We've got tax collectors. We've got sinners, we've got Pharisees, and we've got teachers of the law or, or scribes, often they were called. So, the fa- if you're not aware of the, the different characters here, it's hard to understand what's actually going on. So, let me, let me fill in a couple of gaps. The Pharisees were a sect within ancient Judaism. And they just believed a very simple truth. If every person would obey the law for a single day, one day then God would return and set the world right. That was what they believed, fund- fundamentally. And the way they tried to make this happen was they put a bunch of extra rules or guardrails around the law to, s- to hopefully mean that for just one day, the entire of God's people would obey the law for one day and then God would return and make everything right. But the problem is it didn't work. And all it seemed to do was make him super uptight and super stressed out all the time. And super judgy. We don't know any Christians like that, do we? And it made them lose sight of the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God. The God that they said that they believed in. So we've got this super judgy group of people trying really hard to make everyone do the right things. But then we've got the scribes and the teachers of the law. And they were responsible for copying the law of Moses. So, the first bit of, and a little bit of the, of the prophets. So, the first bit of the Old Testament, and the, the, um, and some of the prophets. It was their responsibility to copy it word for word, from one scroll onto a new scroll. Scribes. Scribe. Write down. Because written word was rare back then. And they knew, they knew the Scriptures about as well as you and I know the lyrics to our favorite songs. What's your favorite song? Anyone got one? Let it be, Beatles. Or well, I don't know, I don't know what your favorite song might be, but whatever it is, the scribes knew the Old Testament law, all first five books of the Bible, as well as you know the songs, the lyrics to your favorite song. And Which means they knew exactly what the rules said, and they knew exactly who was doing the right things and who wasn't. So, we've got those two groups of people, and then we've got the tax collectors and the sinners. Well, tax collectors are never popular, they're not popular now. Now, I love you if you're a tax collector or work in the the taxation office, I think we've got a brother-in-law that does, God bless him, but they've never been popular, not in this time, not in that time, but back in the ancient world, it was a little different, because particularly in Judaism, tax collectors, if you didn't know this, tax collectors collected taxes on behalf of Rome. Now, Rome was the occupying force at the time, and so Caesar needed to be paid, or wanted to be paid, and so Rome taxed the people, and he employed local people to do it. And so, a tax collector was a Jewish person who'd sold out to Rome, and was collecting taxes on behalf of the empire. And to earn his wage, because they would have all been men, to earn his wage, he jacked the price a little bit, So Caesar charged 50%, so he would charge 65% of your wage. And he would pocket the 15%. Now, do you reckon that made him popular? Nope. Absolutely not. So they were not a super popular group of people. They were seen by the religious elites as traitors, basically. Traitors, and they were super wealthy. And then we've got this other group, the sinners, this is a trickier one, to be honest, because it's not super clear exactly who they were. But the best way to understand it is that the sinners were a category of people that were either unwilling or unable to abide by the law of Moses. They were seen by the religious elites as completely irreligious and out of touch with what God was calling His people to do, either because they chose to be out of touch, so they just didn't want anything to do with it, or they couldn't afford to be in touch they couldn't read they couldn't write and or they were disabled they were the least of the community which often meant they were prohibited from being present in worship so that, and if you weren't present in worship you didn't know what the rules were so you couldn't abide by them so therefore you were a sinner do you follow that so we got here this group of people that are tax collectors and sinners. So, the picture is obviously the lowest of the low, the people that don't fit anywhere that you wouldn't invite around for dinner. Who would they be in our community? Perhaps some of the homeless, perhaps those who can't afford to do certain things, could be those that are illiterate, but it's also the people that we would cast out of our society. What about murderers, terrorists? adulterers, I think it's, we like to cast our mind to the to things that we think are socially comfortable when we think of the categories of tax collectors and sinners, but what about the ones that are not? Because it's with that lens that we step into exactly what it is Jesus wants to say to us. Because Jesus has been criticized in this moment for spending time with people that are outside the religious system, as simple as that. And in response to that criticism, Jesus tells two parables. Well, He tells three, actually, but the first two is what we're focusing on today. And these two are designed to illustrate a significant, but ultimately, a singular truth. So, let's continue. Let's see what He says. Jesus told them this parable in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, in this area of the world, being a shepherd was not an uncommon thing? Doesn't He leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until He finds it? Jesus is the master teacher here, because He's got them in a place where He goes, yeah, absolutely we would do that. Why would we not leave the 99 where it's safe and go and find the one? Sometimes, often the shepherds didn't own the sheep, they were just responsible for them, so they would be accountable for the ones that they had lost. And so, of course, they're going to leave the hundred where it's safe. And then, yeah, go find the other one. He's got the crowd with him. Yes, Jesus, absolutely we would. And when he finds it, doesn't he joyfully put it on his shoulders and take it home to, to the rest where it belongs? And he would, he would call his friends and neighbors together and say, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And Then Jesus says, I tell you the truth. That in the same way, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Jesus paints the picture of a hundred sheep, and He loses one of them. One percent is lost. This is not like a 25 percent, you've got three out of your four kids, so that's not bad. This is one percent. And he goes to find it and he finds it and he brings it home and he celebrates. To the shepherd in this moment, the one has enough value to go searching for it. He doesn't say 99% is good enough because I'd be happy with that as a passing grade, wouldn't you? He leaves the others in a safe place and goes hunting for the one. But Jesus is quick to explain. Once He's got everyone in, saying, yeah, absolutely you'd go and find the other one because I don't want to get in trouble for losing a sheep. It's worth a lot of money in the ancient world. For those that keep sheep, they're worth a lot of money now. I'm getting a nod from Hayden. He keeps sheep. I know a few of you have kept them over the years. But He gets them all in the same place, agreeing. But then He goes, okay... This is the attitude of the kingdom. There's more rejoicing when one sinner, that is one person that is far from God, repents, turns back, changes path, returns to God, than over the 99 faithful people that didn't need to repent in the first place. Now, I want you to notice something before we go any further. You might have never heard this before, because I'd never seen it before. Notice, excuse me, (coughs) Jesus says there is more rejoicing for the one than the ninety-nine. More rejoicing for the one than the ninety-nine. But I think what's important to notice is that Jesus, in the original language, uses what's called a comparative term for this term, more. It's a comparative term. It means... What he's trying to describe is he's sharing that there is more happening of this than was already going on. There is more of something than is already happening. And so make no mistake, there is rejoicing for the faithful in heaven. Jesus, by using a comparative term, declares a simple truth. That there is rejoicing in heaven for the faithful that are here. There is rejoicing by the angels for the faithful that are here. That if you are a faithful follower of Jesus, if you have been a part of the church for years, the angels in heaven are rejoicing for you right now. Have you ever heard that before? Because that is a truth. That Jesus takes, in a sense, as an assumed reality over you. So perhaps, maybe all God brought you here to, to hear this morning was that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over your presence in the community of faith. Hebrews talks about that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The angels and the faithful saints of old. That they are rejoicing in our faith journey with God. That we ought keep going because the angels in heaven are rejoicing about your presence in the kingdom. But he says, and make no mistake, that whilst there is rejoicing in heaven for your presence here in the kingdom, there is more rejoicing over the one that is found. But Jesus isn't finished. He illustrates it a second time. He says, "Or well, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now we're talking 10% loss. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is about as clear as it gets. When faced with criticism about those that he was hanging out with, those considered outside the community of faith, those considered, in his his words, lost, he says, I care for these people as much as I care for you. If we fast forward further into Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he declares a truth about his heart. He says, the Son of Man, talking about himself, came to seek and to save that which was lost, those that are far from God. Jesus' singular truth that he declares in the face of criticism about who he's spending his time with is that Jesus' heart and mission was for those that are far from God. Not at the expense of those that are in the community, because they're still rejoicing for you, but His heart is for those that are far from God. And if we are to be His apprentices, if we are called to be His disciples, then we need to share His heart and to embrace His mission in the world. The message that you and I need to hear as followers of Jesus is that He was more concerned more worried. In the same way that a parent is worried about the child that is not in their presence than the three or four or five or one child that is in their presence. Jesus was worried about those that are lost, more worried about them than He is about those that are found. And that's hard to hear. But we actually get this as a parent We're not worried about the children we know are safe. We're worried about the one that is lost. And Jesus is ready to leave us where He knows we are safe. There's a little comment one might offer here of what are we doing to make sure the church community is a safe place for followers of Jesus? Are we looking after one another? Are we taking care of one another? Is Jesus comfortable leaving us where we are safe? It's an interesting question. I'm not going to go into that today. But Jesus is ready to leave us where He knows we are safe and go after the people that many churches would choose to keep at arm's length because their life is complicated. Do you know someone with a complicated life that you don't reckon would feel comfortable in a church that isn't a follower of Jesus? I do. But the good news is that we were all lost sheep once, And sometimes we might feel like we still are. I have days like that, don't you? Where you feel like you're just lost in the wilderness. Jesus doesn't feel like He's anywhere close. But Jesus was willing to search for me. Jesus was willing to search for you. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. But if you're not a follower of Jesus... I need to be honest with you and say that this passage is about you. It's God's heart for you, it's Jesus' love for you, and it's our hope for you. You might not have even considered yourself lost up until now, you might say, Josh, I know exactly where I am, I'm sitting in a cold church, or I'm sitting at home watching on my computer or watching on my phone or travelling to work on the bus, whatever, I I don't know where you might be. I know, but Josh, I know exactly where I am. I'm not lost. And I would say, this is not a a lost that is like being in the wilderness without a map or driving through the city these days without Google Maps because none of us know where we're going anymore. This idea of being lost is simply about not being where we ought to be. Because a child wandering through the showgrounds staring at all the shiny lights, doesn't think they're lost. They don't know where they are, necessarily, or they know exactly where they are next to the big shiny lights. They know they're in the showgrounds. They know they're smelling the donuts. They know exactly where they are. But according to the parent, they're not where they ought to be. And so, friends, simply to be lost is to not be, not, is to not be where we ought to be. And the truth is that you and I were created for a relationship with God. And when we aren't in that relationship, we feel empty, we feel lost. We try and fill it with all sorts of things, and each one of those things lets us down and eats us alive. None of them work. Why? Because we were created to be in relationship with God. And when we're not, we're lost, because we're not where we ought to be. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you've tried a bunch of different things to fill the hole and it's not working. Maybe you're here just simply today to hear the truth that you're lost and God has made a way for you to be found. Because Jesus is never going to let you down. He gave, us li- gave His life so that you and I could find life. It's a free gift that you can't earn. You don't deserve. But He did it anyway. Why? Because of His love for you because you have value, because you are worth leaving the 99 to go and find. That is Jesus' heart, to see the lost found. Now, if you've been around the church over the last couple of years, you'd have heard me talk about how much of a priority we're going to be making this in, within the life of our church, and that might make you feel uncomfortable, and I'm, partly I'm sorry and partly I'm not sorry about that. But the reality is, if Jesus cared about it as His body, the church, we need to care about it. And I want to finish by pointing out something significant in the text that we might not have noticed. So, go back up to verse 1. Bethany, if you've got verse 1 that you can pop up there, that'd be awesome. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners, next one. The tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. They were attracted to Jesus. There's something magnetic about Jesus. There's something magnetic about His love. He'd already declared the truth about what following Him would cost people, yet people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and wanted to be around Him. There was something magnetic still they came. Why? Because I think it's the simple truth that Jesus offers words of eternal life that we cannot find anywhere else. When the the disciples declare, when Jesus declared some hard teaching in one of the Gospels, and they all started leaving, they're like, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And Jesus turns to His disciples and He says, you're not going to leave too, are you? And Peter turns to Him and says, Jesus, where else would we go? Where else would we go? You're offering the words of eternal life. No one else is offering that. We've seen all that you're doing. Nothing else compares. I believe it's that magnetic love that draws those that are nothing like us to Jesus. And I believe that we as the church are called to introduce people to that Jesus by having the same heart as Jesus. And the challenge is to have a heart for the lost puts significant, some would say unreasonable or unfair amounts of time, energy, and resources in seeking to reach those that are not yet a part of our church. But that's what we've decided to do as a church. And I'm not going to apologize for it, and we as leaders are not going to apologize for it. Why? Because if we are God's church, if we are apprentices of Jesus, we need to care about what Jesus cared about. And that was that He declared the rejoicing about those that are here, but the even greater rejoicing over those that are found, that have been lost. And so my invitation and my challenge to you simply, if I'd been able to stand and, and walk around on the stage a bit more today, I would have been jumping up and down declaring this and inviting you to it. But my invitation and my challenge to you is simply this. Lean in. Lean in to our mission as a church. Lean in to our calling as a church. Lean in to the priorities we've chosen to set as a church. Why? Because they matter to Jesus. Lean in and seek to listen and understand Jesus' heart for the lost. So that it might become your heart so that it might become my heart. Our vision is to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. That transformation, I've said this before, is not just about those that are nothing like Jesus. But that transformation is also is a continuing work within you and me that transforms, metamorphosis, metamorphosis that word. Transform is an easy word to say transforms us to be more like Jesus, to have a heart that better reflects Jesus' priority in the world. And if we're not dead, God's not done. To lean in to Jesus' heart for the lost. Why? Because we've committed to following Him as His apprentices. And if it matters to Jesus, it matters to us. Let's pray together, church. Loving God, I thank You for Your Word and for the way that it speaks into our hearts. And if I'm honest, this one's a challenging one because it drags us out of our comfort zone. It takes us to a place that, to be honest, maybe some of those Pharisees and scribes took up, takes us to the place that they were feeling. Lord, help us to receive that conviction and that tension and help us to not be satisfied with it. Crystallize within us a discontent of the difference between perhaps where our heart is at for the lost and where your heart is at for the lost. Teach us to value the one, the same way that you do. But remind us also that we have legions of angels in heaven rejoicing over our presence and may we never lose sight of that truth too, of the love and joy that we experience because we're already a part of your kingdom. Help us as your church to get this right. Give us the grace to receive what you have for us today and the courage to live it out. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.